Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, we talk to Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, who teaches up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School outside of Chicago. We talk about his becoming a scholar, him becoming a Christian at an early age, and growing up in a Christian home, how that led him to care about questions about the Bible, which ultimately led to him becoming a scholar on teaching theology in the Bible. We talk about his role in the reemergence of the theological interpretation of Scripture in the evangelical world. Talk to him about some of the good and bad that comes along with that, and how he has sharpened up some of his language over the years to try to distinguish what he's doing from what some others may be doing who are claiming theological interpretation. We also talk about pastors as theologians and how theology impacts the church and some of his future projects that he has coming. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with him. Church Grammar is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. That's an English translation that is faithful to the original text without sacrificing clarity. You can check out their latest offerings on csbible.com. They've got the CSB Study Bible, the Spurgeon Study Bible, the Ancient Faith Study Bible, which I was able to work on and I'm really proud of, with footnotes and commentary from the Church Fathers, and a whole host of other Bibles that will serve you and your church. You can also check out our other sponsor, B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to see their latest offerings. They offer textbooks on theology and hermeneutics and New Testament and Old Testament, American history. They've got monographs. They've got books that get into linguistic studies on certain books of the Bible, all kinds of different things that B&H is putting out. They're doing great work, so make sure to check out their latest offerings. And now, here's my conversation with Kevin Van Hooser. But first, my friend, your favorite, no big deal. Thanks so much for jumping on today. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, so let's talk a little bit. We'll get right into it. I talk to uh, our guests typically at the beginning about what is their faith background and how did that lead to them becoming a scholar? So why don't you just give us a little bit of your biography uh, up through your PhD program? Okay, sure. So uh, from what my parents tell me, I was the first Christian in the family. As I was three years old, they sent me to Sunday school because that's what you did in those days to be respectable. And I came back asking questions, apparently, hmm. questions about what I had heard, Bible stories and so on. And my mother in particular, uh, she felt she had to answer my questions. And so she read the Bible for herself on her own. It's not ideal, but uh, she became convicted. And I think she learned a lot. And in any case, it was sort of my questioning that led her to become a Bible-believing Christian. And wow. for the next few years, she uh, took our family around visiting churches and looking for people who were actually preaching the Bible. So she had some kind of intuitive sense of what was biblical and what wasn't. And maybe, maybe that's what uh, started me on my quest to ask the same question. What does it mean to be biblical? But in any case, for all intents and purposes, I grew up in a Christian home because I don't remember my one and two year old experience. And uh, so let's see what is significantly after that, I attended Westmont College, uh, sort of on a not a lark, but 
as a detour, I, I was heading to Amherst College and they offered me the prospect of deferred admission. And a family friend said, you know, you need to have a Christian grounding before you go off to this secular college in the Northeast. And I thought it was interesting idea uh, to deepen my Bible knowledge. And so I agreed and Amherst College let me do it, though I have to say it was very odd in their eyes to take a year of deferred admission mm. in order to go to another college. Right. I don't think anyone's done that before or since. But um, that year at Westmont was extremely valuable. And I particularly enjoyed the New Testament classes I took with my mentor, Robert Gundry. I went to Amherst and uh, as scheduled, and I was uncomfortable with a lot of what I was hearing. And um, I had these questions about the Bible and theology, and Amherst just was not the place that became clear for me to pursue them. So I wrote back to Bob Gundry and said, you know, would you welcome a prodigal back? <laughs> he wrote a great letter saying, not only will we welcome him back, but we will roast the calf of academic instruction to his taste. That's great. Well done. <laughs> And so I just thought, you know, this is great. And I didn't know at the time that he was an internationally renowned New Testament scholar. But I, to this day, I feel, because I did return to Westmont, I feel that I had a as good or better an education at Westmont than I was getting at Amherst, which was, you know, a kind of potted Ivy League college, they call themselves. And what were you going to study at Amherst before you studied I was studied a philosophy, philosophy, English, and music uh, were my subjects, and I think I had was on the verge of declaring myself a philosophy and English major, hmm. but I actually ran into problems in the English department because apparently I was obsessed with finding out what the author intended to communicate. <laughs> the Lord was setting you up and you just didn't even know it yet. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was being set up and I didn't know it. And what I learned at the, what I was learning at Amherst, I later discovered was a form of literary criticism called new criticism. And I didn't have a label for it at the time. I just, there was something that uh, bothered me about it. It was because I was being told to write essays about how I felt about the text rather than what the text was, what the author was trying to do in the text. Mm. And that actually went against my high school training, which wasn't a Christian education at all. And so how did you, so while you're at Westmont, I guess, is that when you felt like you started being drawn toward academic study or did you did you feel like you wanted to be a pastor or how did you, well, you go from I, there? Well, I have to say uh, studying the Bible at a Christian college was, it was an eye-opener to me. The idea that, for example, the New Testament was filled with occasional literature, you know, written by different people for different situations and then having Bob Gundry talk about redaction criticism and appreciating the differences between the synoptics, that just was breathtaking to me. And I wanted to be a New Testament scholar. And so I was doing everything I could with Greek and New Testament criticism, believe it or not, textual criticism, I mean, uh, getting really technical into the New Testament. But it was actually Bob Gundry who said, you know what? Uh, the evangelical world has enough New Testament scholars hmm. at this point. But we It's not that he said we don't want you or that we don't really need you but he was just saying strategically he thought I could deploy my gifts more effectively elsewhere and I think he took the measure of me and again better than I could have myself at that time and I think just realized I had 
the kind of wide-ranging interests that a systematic theologian needs. And so he's the one who said, you know, we need people to study systematic theology. And I, I took that as a kind of mandate. Uh, I think I might have been a junior or maybe early in my senior career in college. And I just, I just kind of heard it as a mandate. So I thought, so that's, that's my designated vocation, unless I'm led to go in another direction. Hmm. So you were, you were from the end of your bachelor's degree, knew that you wanted to go into academic ministry like you're doing now. Well, I wasn't sure about the academics. It's just um, he did say something about systematic theology, and I knew I had to go on because many of my questions and new questions that I discovered in college had not yet been answered. Mm. So I knew I was going to go on. It wasn't clear where or when. And in fact, after college, I did not go on to academia. And there was a little bit of a crisis in my life. I, had, I was wondering, because I went to do a short-term mission in Europe. And uh, I remember thinking, is this the end of my academic career? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I took one year off. And uh, I was doing something very different for a year. And you, you, I did wonder, will I go back? But even during that year of doing mission work in France, it raised questions in my mind about how other cultures were reading scripture mm -hmm. and you know how to move from the Bible to theology in a particular culture. And so I knew I had to go back, and, but I was only thinking as far as seminary at the time. And then you got into, you went to Westminster and then you went on to Cambridge right after that. And so was it during that time when you really started to think, okay, I want to do hermeneutics and theological interpretation? Where did your interest in that come up? Because you've been, you know, yeah, one of the well, foremost people in bringing that back around. So, yeah, it wasn't then actually. I mean, I did come up with the burning question, what does it mean to be biblical? Because mm -hmm. the more I studied it in seminary and the more I heard even Reformed people arguing about things like the covenant and so on. I, it, the question, what does it mean to be biblical, was the one that really gripped me. And that was the question I packed and took with me to Cambridge for my doctoral studies. What does it mean to be biblical? However, at Cambridge, um, the impression that I was given was to do theology, you first have to hitch your wagon to a respectable philosophy. Hmm. And so that's one of the reasons I went in the direction of Paul Ricoeur. His was the most respectable hermeneutics I discovered. So I learned that kind of backwards and forwards. But, and, I, and I still knew the Bible had to be the supreme authority. And there was an uncomfortable fit because in philosophical hermeneutics, I wasn't convinced that theology was calling the shots. So if you look at my doctoral dissertation, I think you can see seeds of what later came to be known as the theological interpretation of scripture. That is, I was uncomfortable simply to cede all the important ground and hermeneutics to philosophy. Hmm. So let's talk about TIS a little bit. Let's transition to that because you, you know, like I said, you've been near the forefront of some of the um, recapturing of that in evangelicalism or, or maybe even renewed interest in evangelicalism. And so where have you, where did you see, when you first started doing that, was there a lot of pushback? Was it sort of um, taboo to do that? I mean, even now in some circles, it's taboo to do those kind of things, but was it even more so then, or was there more of a hunger for it when you first started getting involved in it? Uh, it was sort of controversial because what we're talking about is how to read the Bible rightly. And it was really when I was teaching at the University of Edinburgh that I got pulled in even more 
to hermeneutical questions and had to wrestle with how do I let the Bible actually have priority in the process of interpretation? Mm -hmm. And what, so there was two fronts, actually three fronts, if I can just mention them. The first front was because of my work on Recur, I was asked to teach a little bit in the MA in comparative literature degree at the University of Edinburgh. And this meant I had comparative lit students from all over Europe uh, they, this was not in divinity. So these would be, you know, it wasn't in the context of Christian faith at all. This yeah. is just regular literature. And I discovered in that group that there was a fierce, uh, fierce insistence on the right of the reader to read in whatever ways please the reader. I remember very distinctly when, talking about recur to this group. They were reacting against recur. He was too conservative. And I remember one student said, who are you and who is Paul Recur to tell me how I can or cannot read? Hmm. In other words, they were resisting any idea of the ethics of interpretation. So I saw that. And then in my own faculty, the Faculty of Divinity at New College, I was running a interdepartmental seminar on biblical interpretation. And that, again, was very formative to my thinking because I saw that each discipline wanted to sort of own a scripture for itself and was reluctant in part to let others into it for too long. And so that led me to raise the question to myself, at least, you know, is theology just one more voice competing, you know, to hold the reins of biblical interpretation or mm -hmm. should I not be some kind of a facilitator? So those two experiences, and at the same time, and this is still in Scotland, I was uh, a member of the Church of Scotland, and because I was a theologian in Edinburgh, I was invited to sit on what was called the Panel on Doctrine, the committee responsible for doctrine in the Church of Scotland. And this is the 90s, and the church was wrestling with questions of sexuality and homosexuality and all that, and it quickly became clear that the real issue was hermeneutics. Hmm. So at the same time I was teaching these comparative MA and uh, comparative lit students, at the same time I was running the interdepartmental seminar on biblical interpretation, I was also, you know, um, in a kind of battle in the Church of Scotland over how to read the Bible correctly. So all of these things uh, put uh, theology on the front burner. And so, yes, it's always been controversial for as long as I've been involved. What, I, what gradually happened, though, Brandon, is that uh, as I became a little more mature and confident, um, I left this Cambridge way of thinking that, you know, philo philosophical hermeneutics had to be in the driver's seat. Mm. And I became more and more convinced that Christian theology, in other words, faith-seeking understanding, should itself be in the driver's seat when we're reading Scripture. And so when we talk about TIS, you and I have had this conversation in the past, and I had it with Dan Trier um, in an earlier episode of this podcast. We talked about how TIS has sort of evolved into a place where there's a lot of different people who are claiming to be part of the school. So you have people, you know, from Moberly to, to you to N.T. Wright is, you know, dabbled in that with the uh, with the um, dictionary that you guys worked on. So what do you think has been some of the, the dangers that have come out of TIS and what are some of the good things that have come out? Because it does seem like a lot of people can claim it and they're not on the same page in a lot of ways uh, theologically. 
Right. And so I would say that's probably the least fortunate thing that's come out of it is more ambiguity and clarity, which is to say some confusion over what it actually is. When I speak of theological interpretation of scripture, and to be honest, I use the term less and less these days precisely because of the associations that it now has. Mm -hmm. But when I use it, I'm thinking of, you know, reading the Bible as the word of God for the people of God, past and present. That means I'm interested in the history of interpretation in the church, and I'm interested in ecclesial issues today. So reading the Bible as the Word of God, with and for the people of God, past and present. That's basically how I understand it. And if you pressed me on what distinguishes my way of doing it from others, I'd probably say a focus on the ontology of scripture because I, I do think that what we say scripture is is one of the most important factors that determines how we then read it right and so as far as the ontology of scripture i want to say that it is a dually authored text it's ultimately god's authoring his communicative action through human discourse so the ontological question is still very big for me and when I read other people who are involved in theological interpretation of scripture, sometimes I get the impression that they are simply thinking my interpretive community or my interpretive tradition. In other words, it's the church and my reading place mm -hmm. that makes a kind of interpretation theological. Whereas I would want to say, no, it's the nature of the object and the purpose for which you're doing it that make it theological. And so if we're, I have a lot of um, seminary students, PhD students who listen to this podcast. And so what kind of advice would you give to them for people who are interested in TIS, they're interested in these conversations? What would be some just three or four, you know, kind of guardrails to say, hey, when you're going into this, make sure you're careful about not going down this road or here's some things you need to think about to get you on the right path so that they don't jump into the TIS argument and then sort of fall off. Uh, a side that you you personally wouldn't intend or wouldn't think was uh, a good way to go? Yeah, that's a good question. So one thing to do is just make sure you're clear about what someone means in using the term. It's a little bit like the, the term meaning itself. What do people mean by it? And you can get, you, if you don't sort of focus on that, the, just the definitional question, you can get disoriented. The second thing I would say is uh, make sure you aren't uh, simply interpreting the Bible and saying it's theological because you're doing it from a theological location in a particular interpretive community. Mm. Um, because the, the danger there, or my concern about that would be that what makes it theological is, is your, your tradition rather than the word of God and scripture itself. I, 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 I'm hesitant to define theological reading in terms of simply one more interpretive interest that relativizes the project, and I think it ultimately subverts biblical authority. Right? The Bible has to be able to correct the traditions of its interpretation. Otherwise, you've just got a reader response type of thing that comes out of it, which is and that's one concern. I think I think yeah, to right exactly. Some versions of theological interpretation seem to be edging towards a kind of glorified community reader response way and. Uh, I've, I've looked at that, been there, done that, I, and I don't think that serves biblical authority. And so if we're Presbyterian, you're Presbyterian, I'm a Baptist, there's Anglicans and others who are all kind of dabbling in 
this world. And in some ways, it's, it's brought about a lot of Catholicity and a lot of unity among denominations that I've seen in theologians working together and doing projects together. But how would you, what would be some guardrails you would say doctrinally to say, okay, you guys have different confessions, maybe you have different secondary issues. What are a handful of things that you'd say, if you're denying this primary doctrine or this primary confession, you're already kind of working down the wrong, uh, the wrong path when you're doing theological interpretation? Yeah, that's a great question, and Protestants have struggled with it. Right. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, and I, I did feel the need to, you know, respond to that objection that, uh, you know, Protestants can't get their doctrinal act together. They really don't agree on anything. And to say that Scripture is the foundation of their theology well, that's the only thing they agree on. From that point on, they just split in many different directions. There's an element of proof to that. But um, one of the things I did a couple of years ago was get involved in a project we called the Reforming Catholic Confession. Mm -hmm. And each, each part of that name is important. We wanted it to be reforming and that the people signing on to it all agreed that our interpretive traditions and communities stand under the authority of scripture. And then we all agreed that um, there was a core that we agreed on. That's the force of Catholicity. You know, we all agreed on a whole list of essentials that are in that document that your listeners can uh, find easily enough, reformingcatholicconfession.com. And, uh, and then the other thing is, um, with Dan Trier, who I guess you had on your podcast recently, he and I co-authored a book entitled Theology in the Mirror of Scripture, mm -hmm. and we also tried to hammer out what we called the core of, a, of mere uh, evangelical theology. And it basically comes down to, the so if, the, if Scripture is the formal principle of evangelical theology, we argued that the doctrine of the Trinity its presuppositions and entailments is kind of the material principle because without the doctrine of the Trinity, the gospel, the whole story of the gospel kind of falls apart. Yes. You can at least start on the Trinity, which some people aren't doing. Um, authority of scripture, you know, of course, authority can mean different things to different people, but, but I take it, you would say, you know, sort of the um, somewhere between what the early church was saying in the councils and kind of what the reformation uh, taught as far as the solas? Is that how you would say, like, that's where you can start with your authority of Scripture to keep you kind of yes. grounded in Scripture? Yes. And then um, if you pressed me further beyond the doctrine of the Trinity, I probably would, you know, talk about the solas as each capturing an important aspect of the gospel. So my the concern that I think should be at the heart, what we should really uh, confess that we have in common if we believe in one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, is the doctrine of the Trinity and the gospel. And I believe the solas of the Reformation, sola gratia, sola fide, and so on, these are all ways of trying to secure the supremacy of the gospel, just as sola scriptura tries to secure the supremacy of scripture. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. So let's move a little bit toward, you, you've talked a lot about the church as well, and obviously you've done a lot of work in pastor theologian, type ideas, talking about how the, the, the pastor needs to be the, the primary theologian of the church. Um, you just came out with this book from Lexham called Hearers and Doers. 
which is probably yes. your most, maybe your most um, accessible, most kind of pastor church level book that you've written so far. Uh, at least one of, if not the, um, actually I have a great compliment for you. There's a guy who I was an elder with at a church right before uh, we moved to Cedarville here a couple of weeks ago. And um, he likes theology, cares about theology, but often has a hard time. Like I, I love, you know, the ETS papers that five people care about. I love the, you know, the deep uh, theological works and stuff like that. He's always looking for, hey, I'm just a regular pastor with an MDiv. Give me something to, to just get my handles around so that I can teach doctrine and do discipleship around doctrine in our church. And so I had posted a picture of a copy of that book when I got a, a review copy from Lexham, and he sent me a text and said, hey, have you read that yet? And I said, no, not yet, but I'm going too soon. And he said, hey, can I borrow it before you read it? So I said, sure. So I gave it to him. About two weeks later, he texted me, and he said, hey, you're not getting a copy of this book back because I loved it so much. I've highlighted and written all over it. And so I'm just <laughs> going to buy you a new copy. So that's a good compliment for you because I'm sure that was the type of thing you were going for with that book, if I understand right. Yeah, nice. Thanks for that. Um, yeah, the ETS papers, that could be the, you know, the meat and potatoes that uh, aren't for everybody's digestion. And I don't think the book that I wrote was necessarily milk for babies either. No, no. I think my book was probably more like comfort food. <laughs> <laughs> Little biscuits and gravy. There we go. <laughs> so, what, so what were you trying to argue in that book? What's the, the big picture of that book and how do you think it's going to help pastors and churches? Well, uh, so if theology serves the church, probably the most important thing I can say as a theologian is that the church as the body of Christ is out of shape and we need to shape up. So what, what I mean by that is we need to get serious about the task, the commission that Jesus charged us with of making disciples. And I guess my concern, particularly for North America, is that's the context I know best now, my, my concern is that I think there's a picture that has got lodged into the public imagination of a non-discipleship Christianity. And I don't think such a thing exists. And so how would you define discipleship? How would you uh, say the church is doing that wrong and how can they do that better? Well, discipleship means actively following Jesus Christ um, putting his words into practice. Thus, the title of the book is Hearers and Doers. Jesus doesn't want admirers. He doesn't want people who are simply hearers. He wants followers who have to be doers, people who can put his word into practice. And that, uh, that presupposes, of course, that we understand the word. I, I see doctrine as um, not simply a propositional truth to which you can can assent. It's, it's not less than that, but it has to be more than that. I think it's direction for discipleship. It's direction for how to living, for living out one's faith. Yeah, so the people who are going to make the argument, well, you don't really need theology. You just need to love Jesus and follow Jesus. And that's the practical side. And that's all that matters. You would say, well, you know, if you don't have your foundation set right and you're not hearing doctrine, you're not hearing the word, then you're going to have a hard time doing it correctly. Right. And then it also, um, who is Jesus Christ? I mean, mm. to answer that, I think you re it requires some kind of doctrine. That is, it's, it's not um, straightforward. People have read the Bible, and then they've done very different things as far as their interpretation of who Jesus is. So part of what's involved in making disciples, I argue in the book, is learning how to read the Bible coherently and as a unity 
that provides unified testimony to Jesus Christ. Mm. It's, um, we don't understand Scripture without Christ. We don't understand Christ without understanding Scripture. And how would you, I heard a seminary uh, president a few years ago say that he thought in an ideal world, the academy, the seminary, the graduate school, they would be training pastors to do theology in the church. That would be the ideal. It'd be like a think tank that's there to train pastors to go do it themselves. But he would love to one day get away from the, the fact that there are people who come to seminary who are lay people or, or what have you, who just want to get biblical training because they're not getting it anywhere else. How would you respond to that? And how would you put together you know, the academy versus the church when it comes to how theology is done? Yeah. Well, first of all, I welcome those lay people in my classes. I mean, I actually have auditors that come for precisely that reason. And I think that's great. Mm. You know, the, the, they just want to become more mature Christians. Um, the, the seminary is an, is an odd thing. It's, it's, it, it, we do talk about it in academic terms, but really it exists, I think, to serve the church. So I don't think seminaries should think of themselves exclusively in academic terms, even though, you know, we do have to seek accreditation, we do offer degrees, we give exams and so on. We've, we've been shaped by that model to some extent, but I think we have to remember why it is that we exist and what we exist for. And it's not simply to serve the academy. Um, if we're not building up the church in some way, then we've failed at our task of being a seminary. And how would you counsel pastors who are thinking about doing a Master of Divinity and then thinking about going on to PhD work? You know, there's some pastors who think, well, I've got my MDiv, I'm basically trained to be a pastor, I don't need a PhD. Others feel like a PhD is something they should pursue, even if they're not going to teach. How do you counsel, right. you know, your, your MDiv, your master's students who are thinking about doing a PhD, particularly if they're thinking, well, I might just be a pastor, I may not be going into the academy, and may not need this credential for a job or whatever. How would you give yeah. some counsel on that? Well, the first thing I would say is don't say just a pastor. I think the problem is we, we've lowered our view and our sights as to what a pastor is and can be. Hmm. Um, I think a pastor is responsible for helping a congregation to live into and then live out the faith. Part of that involves reading the Bible well and preaching the Bible well. This is not an easy task. Mm -hmm. um, you know, our Western universities arose out of cathedral schools. You know, people went to study with masters who were in a particular place, and theology was one of the first subjects of a university, and arguably a good part of the university curriculum was built around helping people acquire the skills to read the Bible well. And... I think it hasn't gotten any easier. We still need a lot of skills to read the Bible well. And it's not simply a historical project either. Pastors are trying to read the Bible to help people understand the situation they're in today. Mm -hmm. So in other words, pastors have to read the Bible. That's hard enough. But they also have to read the world in a certain sense. And I think this is why being a pastor is so challenging. You need to become biblically literate. You need to become culturally literate, mm -hmm. and then you need to help your congregation figure out what it means to be biblical in terms of our contemporary cultures. 
Yeah, and so you'd say if you're if you need to go on to let's say a PhD to do that, that would be something to do. But do you think that by and large the MDiv or the master's level programs prepare pastors to do that? I mean, I know I'm sure it depends on the institution and other things, but oh, now you're asking the really hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this is the question we all ask, and we need the the great Kevin Van Hooser to tell us the uh, answer to it. <laughs> well, I don't think the PhD is for everyone. We shouldn't. We shouldn't um, make the PhD a default degree. That is, I'm going to do a PhD unless God shows me otherwise. Mm. It should probably be the opposite. You have to have a, a real calling and a, a burning desire uh, to deepen your knowledge in a particular area. Again, just to use my own experience, I went to Cambridge because I had a burning desire to answer the question, what does it mean to be biblical? And three years of seminary didn't fully answer that question for me. Hmm. Um, but uh, I also think that getting a PhD doesn't mean you have to go into academia. I'm involved in something called the Center for Pastor Theologians. Mm -hmm. And this is a wonderful organization based in Oak Park, Illinois. It has fellowships of pastors, about 20 people each. And each of these pastors has a PhD and is in some form of full-time ministry. And their vision, and I think this is a helpful one, their vision is they're trying to reclaim theology for the church by equipping the pastorate to produce the kind of works today that pastors in former times used to produce. I mean, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, these are all pastors. Right. So uh, somehow what we, we need to bridge these two areas without lessening to any extent, you know, the excellence of what we do as students of scripture and theology. We, we don't want to dumb things down for sure. That will not help anyone and dumbing down does not glorify God. But on the other hand, we, I don't think we should always play by the Academy's rules. I think we do need to keep asking the question, is our research helping the church? Can we show how our research is serving the church and helping to make disciples? I think that question has to be at the forefront, especially in the seminary. Hmm. Okay, let's move to, uh, I'm just going to throw a couple of questions at you. It's not really lightning round because you can expand, but just a few questions that, that I thought might be interesting. First of all, what do you think is the most important theology book written in the last 50 years? Oh, that's not fair to throw <laughs> me out that kind of question. You can give me three. Um, these are the ones uh, I, I'm terrible at this. I would, I mean, that's why I'm not on Jeopardy. Listen, I, I would do terrible in a lightning rod, a lightning round. <laughs> how about how about your favorite theology books you've read in the last 25 years? So some of the <laughs> some of the ones that you have enjoyed the most, been the most impactful on you personally. Again, this is still difficult <laughs> for me, but I'll I'll throw out one that's just popped into my head. Okay, uh, Oliver O'Donovan's little book, Begotten or Made. Hmm. I think did a brilliant job both at retrieving one of the most important doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity and the idea that the son is begotten, not made, and in reading the world. That is, he applied this Trinitarian doctrine to a very contemporary question and area of bioethics. And it was less than 100 pages, if I'm remembering correctly, but I was very excited by this because what he did was he moved from Trinitarian uh, theology uh, to contemporary bioethics by examining the distinction made at Nicaea 
between the son being made, as Arius suggested, and the son being begotten. Hmm. And very simply, O'Donovan said, that which we beget is like us, and we accord it the same rights as we give ourselves. That which we make is unlike us, and we treat these things as objects, not as persons. Mm. And his concern was that with the increasing technology we have in the medical field, he detected a shift in the picture we have of human beings as things that used to be begotten, but now, thanks to modern scientific technology, they can be made. And so he was able to draw from Nicaea, you know, a document produced in 325 for a very contemporary question. And to me, it made the doctrine of the Trinity come alive in a new way, in a very exciting way, very helpful way uh, for a question that, you know, is still very perplexing and challenging to us to today. Well, that's a great, that's a great uh, book recommendation. I've read uh, multiple books by him, but I've never even heard of that one. So that was great. I hope it makes up for my not being able to come up with anything else. <laughs> well, I got one more for you. This might be harder or easier, depending on uh, depending on your personality. Some people struggle with this, some don't. Do you have a favorite book that you've written of all the books that you've that you've written? Oh, that that's tough too, um, because when I'm writing a book, it's my favorite, and um, <laughs> because and then when I look back at it again, it brings back you know, very pleasant memories and the same excitement and of discovery and so on. So, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I can't answer that. I'm sorry. It's like children, right? I don't want you, if you ask me which of my favorite child, how am I supposed to answer that? Well, that was an answer in and of itself, the answer that you gave. So it's your favorite, your favorite book is the one you're writing. That's not a bad Correct. answer. Correct. Um, okay. And so what, is there a, an idea or a kind of core principle in your hermeneutics or theology over the last 30 years or so that you've been in scholarship um, that you have shifted on pretty dramatically since you started? Is there a particular thing that you would say, man, that's something I wrote about or something that I taught that I'm just completely convinced uh, differently of now? Well, I, I did mention the hermeneutical change that mm -hmm. I had made thinking at Cambridge. I don't know if that fits in your 30-year scenario or not, but that would be, I think, the biggest change I can think of. And it wasn't necessarily a reversal so much as a consolidation of an uncomfortable feeling I had it then it became a conviction over time um, with regard to other doctrinal matters this probably makes me look bad because Augustine's one of my favorite theologians in part because he was so honest in his retractions about places where he disagreed with himself mm -hmm. but just off the top of my head uh, I can't think of a particular doctrine that uh, I've changed on dramatically and again, I mentioned that too as, as a possible, um, you know, negative factor overall, because uh, I, I don't think it means that I'm not learning. Um, I hope it doesn't mean I'm inflexible. <laughs> it just means I can't think of anything off the top of my head where, you know, I've actually had a significant uh, change of opinion. Well, this is the beauty of doing a podcast. If I send it before, you might have a good answer. If I pop it on the spot, sometimes it's a better answer. Sometimes it's harder to think of it. So could go I either way. You. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so have you, have you felt the need maybe to tighten some of your language about theological interpretation, given some of the things we talked about earlier? Have you yes, tightened yes. some of those things up? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I obviously there are things that I've said in the past that I would probably say differently. 
today. And I wouldn't, I don't think, I didn't count them as the kind of doctrinal changes that I think your previous question was suggesting. Mm -hmm. But yes, uh, I've, I formulate things differently because I take stock of how people understand what I've said. And if I haven't, if, if I don't get the right reader response, then perhaps I'm not using words in the right way. And mm. I've had that experience many times, yes. Okay, so what are some future projects you're working on that you're excited about? Well, again, so my favorite book, <laughs> the one I'm writing now, <laughs> is uh, entitled Mirror Hermeneutics. And I really haven't written on hermeneutics per se for a while. Um, I, so I am returning to this question. I'm excited about the way I'm approaching it now, as opposed to when I wrote, uh, is there a meaning in this text uh, over 20 years ago now? And all I can say is uh, Christology is fully operative in this book in a way that it might not have been as operative in is there a meaning in this text? Mm. So I'm very excited about that project. I am under contract to write a three volume systematic theology and I'm, I am excited about that. It's not my favorite book because I'm not now working on it, but <laughs> it will be my favorite book, hopefully in a year or two. Yeah. So, so what do you see yourself doing? You've done so much in hermeneutics and theological interpretation. Is this going to be a little bit more of here's what the doctrine is and not just what the doctrine does? Or is it still going to be just a expanded, fuller vision of all the things you've already been doing? The answer is I've, I've, uh, I, everything I've done really has been preparing me for this systematic theology. Mm -hmm. All the work in hermeneutics, all the work in interpretation, none of that is an end in itself because hermeneutics exists for the sake of the text. Yep. So I want every, everything I've done, I think I could argue, has been really a tilling of the ground and planting the seed. And I'm hoping that in this systematic theology, the harvest, the doctrinal harvest, the substance and not just method will be to the fore. Yeah. Well, I think everybody will be excited about that. You know, one of the things that I personally, when I get a systematic theology in my hands and there's not a good prolegomena, there's not a good method, or they're sort of not even trying to do that, to me, that's the hardest part. So, you know, the fact that that is sort of where you have been so influential and have written so much, I think a lot of people are going to be really excited about reading a systematic theology that really does have a robust hermeneutic and method underneath it. Yeah, and I can say that I've been thinking a lot about the form and the shape of the systematic, probably because of all the work I've done on prolegomena. So I'm, I'm excited about some of the ideas I have. There'll be some new things. There'll be some old things. But at the end of the day, um, and thinking about the various ways I could go, you know, do I, as you were suggesting, simply kind of make this a uh, you know, a summary of work that I've done up to now. Do I launch in an entirely new direction? That doesn't seem very wise. Hmm. But at the end of the day, I, 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 I've taken a theological view of this, and I have had to acknowledge that in God's providence, you know, he's made me a certain way, given me certain experiences. So I have to write, you know, what I know best. Uh, that won't mean simply repeating what I've said in the past, but um, it means I, I will probably want to consolidate some things and um, as, as well as make some creative new moves, but it will still be in the spirit of things I've done in the past. And how many, it's three volumes, so what's the word count you're, you're shooting for or contra contracted to write? Oh boy, I should probably know that, uh, 
but uh, like I should know the terms of my contract. <laughs> but um, it's it's three volumes, and I think it's probably somewhere between a hundred and a hundred and twenty thousand words per volume. Mm. I'd have to verify that, but I think that's in the ballpark. All right. Well, Kevin, this was really helpful. Thanks so much for doing this. I know we circled around it for about six months trying to make it work. And I appreciate your persistence in doing that because I think this was really helpful. I enjoyed it. Even the curveballs. Mm -hmm.